Our objective here at Hope Chapel is always to introduce people to the new life that's available in Jesus Christ, like Courtney just witnessed for us just a moment ago, but also to help us live as fully as we can in that new life in Jesus Christ. And from time to time, that means we're going to have to deal with some issues in our lives that might we might find a little challenging, a little uncomfortable spiritually. And somewhat in that spirit today, we come to our second message as we've been talking a little bit about how it is that money fits into our overall journey as a child of God. You know, um, money has a tremendous potential to just kind of permeate every aspect of our lives. And, you know, it it destroys characters, it destroys relationships, it, it, it creates bad choices, it just goes on down the line. If, if we don't have a good understanding of what it is that the Bible teaches about, how it is that money fits into our overall spiritual journey before God. I mean, listen, just kind of backing up and laying a little foundation. You know, if God cares about every single aspect of our life, if he counts the number of hairs on our head, it only makes sense that God cares about and has a plan for us to use money in a way that furthers his presence and our joy and his love and his hope and all that kind of stuff in our lives. And so as we come to the Word today, and and if you've ever studied this topic out of the Scriptures, you understand that the Bible has a very complex kind of position on money in our lives. A little later I'm going to use a phrase, it's kind of like it asks us to kind of play with the fire, but not get burned. You know, that's that's really kind of the attitude. And, And with that, it spends a lot of time trying to teach us about how to do that. If you went through, and, and, and I didn't do this, I trusted in the research of others, but they tell me that there are over 500 verses in the Bible that use the word riches, money, or wealth. 500 of them. There's only 69 books. That's a lot of verses. And if you broaden out to the whole issue of, of the place of finances and material things in our lives, there are over 1,600 verses that deal with this issue in our lives. It's, it's, a, it's a big piece or a big slice, and, and what a joy it is. How many of you didn't think about money this past week? Just never crossed your mind. Anybody? Yeah, see, you know, we, it comes across our minds all the time, doesn't it? I mean, it, it seems like we're always reaching for our wallet, pulling out our checkbook, swiping our debit card, or looking at bills and banging our head on the table saying, how are we going to afford all this stuff? You know, and... And doesn't it, isn't it a word of hope to us that God has a word for us about how to integrate this into the victorious life that he's trying to give us in Jesus Christ? Thanks be to God who's given us the victory in Jesus Christ our Lord. Boy, only if that applied to our finances. And so what I want to do today is I want to look at some of the overarching attitudes that are the foundation upon which we deal with money in our spiritual lives, is integrate them into our lives. Next week, I want to talk a little bit about the mechanics, some of the things related to debt and investing and saving and all that kind of stuff that, that is a part of, of God's kind of agenda for the way that we use money in our lives. And of course, you'll remember the last week we talked about giving, and in particular about tithing. And for those of you who didn't get your Skittles, you missed out on a great Sunday, I'll tell you. And, uh, you know, and, and I told somebody this week, he said, I, I just can't wait for the day that I get to preach a sermon about giving and, 
And everybody walks out of there with a smile on their face with absolutely no guilt because everybody's in compliance. You know, it's, just, it's an amazing thing to kind of think about that happening. But it's one of those days where you, you feel like you've just taken a paddle to everybody, including yourself, when you preach about giving. And, and, but in this spirit that God has a plan for every aspect of our lives to be redeemed and to be transformed and, and to somehow add fuel to our relationship with Him. What in the world does the Bible have to say about the place of money in our lives? And with that, I want to invite you to turn over to Luke chapter 16 with me. Luke chapter 16, it's the third of the Gospels. If you happen to be using our Pew Bible today, which you certainly are welcome to do, you're going to find our text on page 887. This is a, a very curious parable that Jesus teaches. But, but the overarching message that I want to share with you today is that God, as, as a first aspect of our attitude about money, is that God really does care about how you handle and use money in your life. Sometimes we have this attitude, okay, I've given God his portion, the 10%, or maybe I've given him an offering above and beyond that or whatever, and so I'm done with God now, the rest of it's mine, and I can go do whatever I want with it, you know? And that's not the truth. I'm going to fall down and hurt myself. Here we go. Um, And this parable, in, in a very unusual way, makes the statement that God really cares about how we use the portion of his wealth that he's given to us He cares about how we use it. Just follow along in this story. Luke chapter 16. I'm going to read the first nine verses. He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who received an accusation that his manager was squandering his possessions. So this guy had had owned maybe a bunch, let's think of it this way, he had a bunch of businesses and he had hired a guy to be a manager of one of his businesses. And he just got word back that, hey, you know, this the books look a little cooked. You should take a look at this. You know, so... So he called the manager and he asked, he says, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you can no longer be my manager. Then the manager said to himself, what, what should I do since my master is taking the management away from me? Notice he doesn't protest at all that he's mismanaged anything. He says, what am I going to do? I'm losing my job. He says, I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. He says, I know what I'll do. So that when I'm removed from my management, people will welcome me into their homes. So he summoned each one of his master's debtors and said, How much do you owe my master? He asked the first one. A hundred measures of oil, he said. Take your invoice, he told him. Sit down quickly and write fifty. Next he asked another one, How much do you owe? He says, I owe a hundred measures of wheat, he said. He said, Take your invoice, he told him, and write eighty. The master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted astutely. That's the shock. In the parable. All the parables have a shock to him. And this is a, he praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted astutely. For the sons of this age are far more astute than the sons of light in dealing with their own people. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of the unrighteous money so that when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. Now, let me be clear right up front. Jesus does not tell this parable in a way to praise unseemly character. He's not saying that, you know, we get this big clap on the back, and way to go, kid, if you're the best cheater in the world. That's not what Jesus' point is. What his point is, is that this guy was 100% all the time committed to what he really valued, and that was himself. 
This guy did all of his life about him. That's what he valued. What's in this for me? How can I get out of it? How am I going to take care of myself? So he's, he's running his master's business. He's skimming money off the side, if you will. He's going to get booted out of his job. And he says, well, you know what I should do? I should make all of my master's vendors love me so that when I get fired, maybe they'll give me a job because I did him a big favor. And this guy, is, and so it's all about him. And what Jesus says is that that kind of commitment, that kind of diligence, that kind of allegiance to what you value is praiseworthy. He said, but there's only one problem. The people who are about them, the people who are living you know, in the realm of darkness, they're really good at that. But the children of light, the people like you and I who call on the name of God as our Savior and our Lord, we're not so good at taking the unrighteous mammon that's around us. That's Jesus' terminology for money, the wealth. We're not so good about taking that stuff and furthering what's valuable to us, which is supposed to be the things of God. You know, we're, we have split personalities when it comes to it. And what Jesus is really trying to say is, God really does care about how you use that which he has entrusted to you. Because he wants you to use it to let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So everything that we have is designed... And so Jesus says, you know what? We need to be just as astute at pursuing and using everything at our disposal to further the objectives of the kingdom as we are, as as the unrighteous are in trying to provide for themselves and have the life that they want. Now listen, part of God's agenda is for you to have adequate food, clothes to wear, heat in the winter, a home to live in, all that kind of stuff. That's all a part of it. Much of this starts with an attitude that everything I have belongs to God. Everything, you know, the cattle on a thousand hills belongs to the Lord. To really be more accurate, even the hills belong to God. You know, I can remember when when our youngest one just started to walk, you know, and, 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 and the older one, it was kind of, you know, especially when he crawled and started to walk, and the word you heard around the house all the time was mine, 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 you know. Well, there isn't anything that Jesus doesn't say mine, mine, mine to. Everything that we have is his, you know. And yet sometimes we inadvertently hijack what belongs to God. There's a story told about a an older woman who came out of a, a, super, a supermarket one time, and she was pushing her cart, and she had a load full of, of, of bags, and, and she got out to her, her car, and, and there were four guys sitting in it. And she was terrified, and, but she was prepared. She reached in her purse and pulled out a handgun and said, Get out of my car! And these four guys just darted out of this car and ran as fast as they could. And she loaded up the car with all the groceries, got in, and tried to put her key in the ignition and couldn't get it to turn. And then she realized that her car was six spots down. And so she moved everything into the other car and drove down to the police station to turn herself in. She said, and down the other end of the counter were the four guys talking about this crazy old woman who just hijacked their car. You know, that's a funny story, but it really does sometimes belay our attitude. We can lose the fact that everything that we have is God. And God cares about how we use it, not only to meet our own needs, but to fulfill his kingdom, his agenda through our lives. He, he wants to use all of it. You know, um, just an, another passage to reaffirm that over at the, the end, and we're going to be going to 1 Timothy in just a minute. So if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn over there with me. This passage is on page 1010 in your pew Bibles. Listen to what God has to say 
about how we're supposed to use the stuff that he's given us in a way that is pleasing, it's consistent with the values that he's implanted within us because of our faith in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 17 of 1 Timothy chapter 6. It says, instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant. That's all of us. Even the poorest people in America live in the top 15 to 20% of the wealth level in all of the world. Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to, be, to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, willing to share, storing up for themselves a foundation for the age to come so they may take hold of life that is real. This is where Jesus said, you know, you know, uh, lay up treasures for yourselves in heaven where neither moth destroy or rust, you know, moth or rust destroy or thieves come in and steal. God wants us to be investing everything that we have in a way that not only furthers his presence in our lives, but builds his kingdom, which is a thing that's on our heart. I love the way John Wesley, who was an old time revival preacher from the last century, he said, you know, this was his sermon about money. He said, Make as much of it as you can, save as much of it as you can, and then give away as much as you can. Of course, after those three simple points at the beginning, he went on for an hour to clarify what all that meant as you go through. And it shows the complexity of the place of money in our lives. So we have this attitude that God cares about every th- all the stuff that we have, how we use it, because it all belongs to him and it's supposed to be an asset in growing us as his children. But beyond that, One of the things that we really need to wrestle with is the issue of, does money possess us or do we possess money? Does money possess us or do we possess money? There's a number of of places in the scriptures that talk about this. You know, Jesus said, you know, you can't serve God and mammon. You can only have one thing sitting on the throne. And so there's a way in which either money can control us or God can control us. I mean, in First in Timothy chapter 6, this is what he wrote to us, beginning with the sixth verse. He, he says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. We're going to talk about that in a minute. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we had food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and, and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. What a great passage of Scripture to memorize for us as we think about this journey. But really what Scripture is trying to point to us is that we can either love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, or we can get drawn aside into loving money, loving stuff. And, and really, the, the Bible in its overarching message says that that there is a way in which money can come to possess us. We structure our lives, our values, the things that we do, you know, the commitments that we make, the priorities that we have. It's all about getting more and more and more and more. And there is a way that money can come to possess us. And unfortunately, over my 25 years of pastoring, I've seen many folks. I should, I'm glad not many, but enough folks to see that people have sacrificed family, faith, character, and more in the pursuit of just having more and more and more. And it becomes an end in itself. But, you know, what the Bible really teaches us is that we are not to be possessed by money, but we are to possess money. That is a tool, an instrument in our hands. It is not a goal 
But it's an instrument, it's a means to an end. Where we're supposed to control it and use it. Where we use it to meet the needs of our families. Where we use it to meet the needs of the kingdom. Where we need the, those who are around us even to bring a little joy to our lives. Now, I thought about this week. You know, what, what are some of the things that we have to struggle with? If we're going to make sure that we possess money and we're not possessed by money. You know, once we've kind of, all right, I want to acknowledge that it's all God's and I'm supposed to use it in a way that's, that's, that's pleasing Him. It's going to further these things that I say that I value because I'm a child of God. And so I want my money now to be a tool, an axe in my hand, you know, a hammer that I get to swing, you know, that's going to allow me to, to fulfill. What attitudes do we have to really look at? What are some of the key issues? And, 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 and there's, I, there's four of them that I've boiled it down to. This isn't exhaustive, but these are four things I'd like for you to think about this as you process this message. One of those is the whole issue of contentment. You and I are constantly going to be at war about the place of money in our lives until we figure out what it is that really brings us contentment. It's interesting that in this passage in Timothy, he says, you know, that godliness with contentment is really great gain. Just to pursue God and then trust that the place in life that God's given you, whether it's at the top of the economic heap or at the bottom, if you can mix that with contentment, if you're just satisfied to be there and for God being faithful to you, that is incredible. That's priceless in the names of MasterCard, right? In the words of MasterCard. It's just a place to get. It's really interesting that, that some of the early revivalists that were a part of our country said that they really didn't have con- confidence that religion could experience a lasting revival. And here's why. Because to get your life centered on God made you more industrious and more frugal. And that led to prosperity, and prosperity was always going to tempt people to move away from God. Because we don't struggle with the issue of contentment. You know, even the world has figured this out. Socrates said that, that the, was asked one time, who's the wealthiest person in the world? And he said, it's the person who's content with the least, because that's nature's wealth. And this whole word of contentment that Paul uses here is the, the idea of self-sufficiency. You know, he talked about this in Philippians, where he said, you know what, I've learned how to be content whether I've got lots or whether I've got nothing, because I know I'm walking with God. And, and this issue of contentment, it's huge. What, what makes you content? What should make you content? And until you've answered that question and hold yourself to it, you're going to struggle with the place of money in your life. I'm going to struggle with the place of money in my life. Beyond contentment, there's the issue of happiness. What makes us happy? Now, folks, you know, you know that I'm a realist and a pragmatist and all that kind of stuff, so i got to tell you that, that at the bottom of the line, if all things stayed equal in your life right now and you were making ten grand a year more than you are now, you'd probably be a little happier, at least in the surface level, right? You'd have a little extra wiggle room at the end of the month, you know. You could maybe take that vacation you wanted to take for 25. You know, it would bring some... But ultimately, we have to re- recognize that our standard of living can never be the source of our happiness. And if we think that things can produce happiness, we are sorely misguided. The thing I've started to realize more and more as I've gotten older is that everything I own owns a part of me. You know, I, I walk around my house and I say, look at all the work I got to do, you know. And, I, and I, I fertilize my yard and then I think, I just got to cut this every week. You know, it, it, it just goes on and on. You know what I'm saying? We think that stuff is going to make us happy. But beyond some small percentage, it's really not going to be a place. You know, I, you know how, 
how significant this is for us today is that this is at epidemic levels in America. That's why the vast majority of households spend more than they make. Because they think that somehow happiness is just in the next purchase that we make. Whether it's a new car or a new sofa or a new frying pan. We think somehow or another it's, it's what's going to make us happier kind of idea. And it just doesn't work that way. You know, um, if you think that happiness is, is, is rooted in what you have, you need to get out and travel some. Especially to some of the poorer countries in the world. You know, I, I can remember in some of my kind of side conversations with the pastor that we worked with in Rwanda, you know, he kind of talked all around the issue, but what he was really saying, he says, we're a lot poorer here in Rwanda, but we're just as happy, if not happier, than the people in America. You know, and, and we went into one of the women who's, who is, uh, was one of the micro-seed borrowers, and Lisa can verify this story, and we're walking, and she had this little eight-foot-by-eight-foot home. Mud block bricks that they had just done out in the road, probably a tin roof on it, no furniture, no electricity, no running water, no indoor plumbing, no anything. They brought, they brought a, a foam mattress in, in off the roof and put it down on the floor, and six of them slept in this room at night. And there was just a rope hanging around the, down the middle so they could hang the, what clothes they had on top of it, especially allow them to dry and et cetera. And we were going in and out, and, and we were feeling sorry for this woman. And the pastor said, she's proud of this place. Because what's running through our minds is how could anybody be happy living like this? We need to struggle with what really makes us happy. Third, I think it really comes down as well to the issue of identity. Do we find our identity in what we have? You know, do we find our identity in the neighborhood that we live in? And, you know, is it one of the upscales or is it on the other side of the tracks kind of idea? Is our house big enough and good enough to make an impression on others and all those kinds of things, you know? Why is it that we opt for the new luxurious import instead of the reliable Ford Focus? Because are we trying to say something about ourselves in that journey, you know? You know, I, I, and we really need to struggle with, with our identity. Do we find our identity in what we have and what we make and all that kind of stuff? Or do we find our identity in the fact that the Son of God died on a cross? so that you and I can live in an intimate relationship with the Eternal Father. Big difference between those two things. And, and if you think you've got that mastered and you can handle it on your own, you are sadly mistaken. That's why we need the body of Christ. Because those challenges go on and on and on. That's why you need to be in spiritual relationships with people who are grounded in, your, in, in their faith in Christ. That's why you need to be studying the Word of God to keep all of this stuff straight. I try to think, what's a litmus test as to whether or not we're finding our identity and what we have? And, 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 and the Holy Spirit prompted me to go back to a conversation I had with somebody almost 10 years ago. And there was an individual who was in a church, and, and they were, he was being very, fairly successful in business. And with that, they had a pretty nice home, and et cetera. And they were frequently inviting people over to join them for dinner. And they had one of the nicer homes in the church. But none of those folks ever invited them to come to their house because it wasn't nice as, as nice as the house that these folks had. And if you're not connecting with people because they have more than you have or they got a nicer house than you do or their furniture's newer, they don't have to put a, a, a blanket over the top of the hassock because you have a big rip down the middle, you know, kind of idea, which we have at our house right now. We're waiting for the kids to stop kind of being animals on the furniture and that kind of stuff. And we got kids in college and everything. But it, 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 if somehow or another those things stop you from connecting with people, then you got a problem with stuff. I don't care if you live in a tent. If you care about you should be connecting with people. 
You know, but if we're somehow not bringing people into our lives because they've got more than us in some fashion or another, then we've got an identity issue related to stuff. Here's one last issue about whether or not we're going to let money possess us or we're going to possess money. And that really boils down to the question of where do we find our security? I love what, I love what, what Paul quotes here. He says, we brought nothing into this world. We're going to take nothing out with us. I read a quote this week of a pastor one time who had a, a young man sit in his office and he said, he says, I, w- I want to be just like my uncle. He died a millionaire. And the pastor asked him, said, well, how much of that did he take with him? You know, I mean, and what is it that brings you peace when you lie down at night? When you think about the future, does it end with your retirement? Or do you think about eternity? And where are you really finding your security in your journey with God? Listen to what the Proverbs have to say. This is God's word to us. He who trusts in riches, he who finds their security in riches is going to fall. In Proverbs 23, verse 15, it talks about the fact that money has this way of being able to sprout its own wings and fly away to somebody else from you. When we think about our future, are we lying, trusting in those things that you know, the size of our bank account, the, the, you know, the conservativeness of our portfolio, it's going to be there for us, and et cetera, and, and there's no way that moth can destroy it or rust can eat away at it? Or is it we find it in the fact that we're in a relationship with God that we know that we're being faithful to, and we're handling the stuff in our lives in a way that's pleasing because He cares about it, and with that, we're going to be okay. We're going to be okay. Jesus is the Son of God, died on a cross, and was resurrected a cold tomb on a Sunday morning some 2,000 years ago so that we can have real security and that we can have victory in this life, even victory over the challenges of the place of money in our lives. And that happens as we live our lives by faith, faith in his redemption and faith in his lordship. And I pray that's how we'll settle these issues in our lives so that we indeed can have the victory in Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, I... I just want to start in a very humble way. I want to say I want to thank you because that sermon went a whole lot better than I thought it was going to, at least from this side of the pulpit. So I just give you thanks, Lord. And, you know, God, these are things that uh, we can make a decision about right now, but these are things that we've got to figure out and we've got to keep figuring out and think about and keeping straight day in and day out of our, in our lives. So, God, today I pray that we would be willing for the very first time, if necessary, for some here who have never called upon God as their Savior and Lord, to take up our cross and to follow you, to place our faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, and to begin to experience that victorious life that God offers us in Jesus Christ. And Father, for those of us who have already grabbed that cross and are all over following after you, Father, I pray that we'd be able to take it up daily as we live by faith in you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you join me in standing and singing to the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills and might have it in his heart to give you a few of them? And with that, I want to invite our ushers to come forward as we begin to sing and to collect our offering. And you can place your connection cards in there. uh, So let's stand and sing to the Lord this morning.